I invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, as you're turning there, just a little bit of a theological context of where we are. You remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, I believe Todd opened up Genesis chapter 12 for us. We saw that the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12 is the very center of God's redemptive plan to save the world that we see in the Bible, the very center of it. Everything prior to that passage uh, is leading up to that moment, and everything that comes after, including all the way to the end of Revelation, is fulfilling those first three verses of Genesis chapter 12. It's the very center of God's redemptive plan to save the world that we see in the Bible. Now, as we come to Genesis chapter 15, our passage this morning, we're going to see that that covenant of grace that God established with Abram back in Genesis chapter 12, in the most mesmerizing way possible, is powerfully ratified and confirmed in our passage. This is a very important passage. We see amazing things in this passage. First off, we see two divine encounters, some of the strangest encounters with God we see in Scripture, and that's including Jacob's wrestling match with the Lord. This is infinitely more strange than that. We see this conversation that Abraham has with God that you and I will be able to relate with from Abram's perspective. And most importantly, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. And as you'll see, because of the riches of this chapter, you and I will be immensely blessed by it. So Genesis chapter 15, starting with verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will then be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. God said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all these, and he cut them in half, and laid each half over against each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And the sun was going down, and a deep uh, sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for four hundred years." But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out of it with great possessions. As for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gershishites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for yet another Amen morning. Well, for the last time this year, we can gather together as brothers in this room to open up your word. Father, we pray that you would send your spirit down upon us, that you would meet with us. That by the power of your spirit, you would turn our eyes upon Jesus and we would behold the beauty and the power of the gospel. We pray, Father, that you do a mighty work in all of our hearts, for we pray in the blessed name of the risen King Jesus. Amen. During Thanksgiving break two weeks ago, my family and I, my wife and my son, uh, went to Chattanooga for a family wedding. I'm going to rephrase that. Two weeks ago, my son and I, a two-year-old, spent eight hours in a car driving to Chattanooga. I don't know how far removed you men are from that type of an experience. Let me just preface this by saying I love my son deeply. 
but that was comparable to spending eight hours in Dante's ninth level of hell, okay? The first two hours were fine. It's the last six hours that I had the problem with. <laughs> Intervals of about 15 seconds of a litany of, Dad, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Daddy, hold me. Daddy, hold me. Interlaced with screams of a banshee, okay? We just did not go to the wedding when we finally arrived. We went straight to the asylum because we were just pulling our hair out. Um, partly joking, but terrible twos. It's no joke, if you don't remember. My son's body and his mind and his emotions are developing and he's starting to understand what it means to long for something better. Better than the lot that he was in. He, was, he did not want to be in that car. I certainly didn't want to be in that car with him. But he was longing for something better than that car seat. And he's developing the ability to voice his frustration. And he's doing it quite loudly, if I might add. Now, I know every child goes through that. But when I was in that car with my boy, watching him just melt, I was like, well, that's a great illustration for Amen. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, I said that there's something that we as Christians experience often in this in-between place, if you remember me saying that. The already not yet aspect of our salvation as Christians that we often experience where on one hand we have received the promises of Jesus, but on the other hand we're eagerly awaiting the total fulfillment to the promises of Jesus. And sometimes that waiting is painful. In a lot of ways it's what this Advent season is about. The whole point of Advent is for us to focus on our true heart's longing, our spiritual exasperation, our longing and our cries of how long, O Lord, until the total fulfillment of your promises. That's what Advent's about. And ironically, it's during the Advent season and during the Christmas season that we often experience the painful side of that longing. Many of us come from broken families, and it's never easy to come from a broken family, but there's something especially painful about it during this Christmas season that puts so much emphasis on family. Many of us experience the pain of loneliness for not having a family. Some of us are experiencing the pain of loss or impending loss. Some of us are experiencing the pain of illness, chronic illness with ourselves or with a loved one. Some of us are experiencing the frustration of unrealized expectations that we set in our careers that come into the end of the year. We haven't achieved what we thought we would because of the toil of labor. Some of us are frustrated by the evil that we constantly see in the world. And we're all frustrated by the evil that we still see in our hearts and are each in our own way. Every single one of us have experienced the painful cries of how long, O oh Lord. My son was longing for Memphis, but every mindful Christian is longing for heaven, and sometimes it is painful. Seems to me that's where Abram was in Genesis chapter 15. He just experienced a major victory in chapter 14, but come in chapter 15, something changes, his mood changes. And he has this conversation with God that's marked with frustration, desperation, doubt, and even fear all of which is summarized by the question he asks in verse 8, Lord, how can I know your promises are true? He doesn't even ask, how long, O oh Lord, like we ask sometimes. He says, God, how can I know I can trust you given my circumstances? I'm willing to bet every single one of us in this room have asked that question before. I'm willing to bet some of us asked that question just a couple of days ago in this week. But what's amazing about this passage, what I want us to see is in the context of Abram's fears and his desperation and his doubts and his frustration, God did not meet with him in anger and wrath, but rather he met it with unfathomable grace. And what I want us to see is during this Advent season, as we're longing for the fulfillment of all things, when we experience the pain of longing and have the painful cries of how long, O Lord, or even how can I trust you, God? There's three things about God's grace in this passage that are meant to encourage us, and if believed, will transform our fear into comfort. Three things. Number one, I just want us to pay attention to the God of promise himself. The God of promise, his demeanor, his character, how he responds to Abram. We're going to look at verse 1 and verse 7 for that. It's just unbelievably encouraging. Then we come to verse 6, we see the promise of the gospel in its simplicity and its profundity. We're just going to spend some time looking at verse 6. Then lastly, in verses 8 through 21, we're going to look at the assurance of the gospel promise, which ultimately answers that question, how can we know? So first and foremost, the God of promise. We're going to be spending time in verse 1 and verse 7. We're going to look elsewhere but the God of promise, just a little bit of context. Prior to this chapter, Abram experienced some major victories in chapter 13 and chapter 14, which Todd talked about last week. You remember, Abram rescued Lot. 
Lot, by the way, who didn't deserve rescuing. However, God in his grace used Abram to rescue Lot, but he experienced a major victory there, rescuing Lot against all odds. He rescued Lot. Then he experienced a major military victory in chapter 14 in the army of the four kings. Humiliated those people. Major military victory for Abram, this know-nothing guy who is now on the world stage. Major military victory. At the end of chapter 14, he has this major spiritual victory where he refused the spoils of war from the king of Sodom. Had he received that spoil, it was essentially like making a deal with the dark side. But he refused that. He denied the spoils of war, a major spiritual victory for him. So here's Abram at the end of chapter 14, just on cloud nine. He has this major spiritual high, but then we get into chapter 15, and Moses gives us that first phrase in verse one where he says, after these things. I don't know about you, but I've experienced many, quote unquote, after these things type of moments in my life. I remember as a kid going to, you know, Bible summer camp or some D-Now discipleship weekend with the church where you have this major spiritual high as a kid, but then you come back to real life and you go back to school and you experience the frustrations of bullies in school and all the rest, and you realize, oh, wow, this world really is difficult after these things type of moment. After these things, after the thrill of victory, after your spiritual high, after Sunday worship, after Christmas, after Easter, after your pulse begins to settle, after you go into your bedroom and you begin to think about your lot in life, after these things, Moses says, Abram struggled in his heart. And we know Abram struggled, right? Because what does God say after these things in verse 1? He doesn't say, good job, Abram. He doesn't say, well done, Abram. He doesn't say, let's get back at it tomorrow, Abram. What does he say? First off, he calls him by name, which is so sweet. He says, Abram, don't be afraid. God's omniscience, he knew that there was something. You and I would have never have known something was happening in his heart had God not said something. But in God's omniscience, he knew that something was happening in the soil of Abram's heart. And he says, Abram's son, don't be afraid. Now, let's just think really quickly what Abram might have been afraid of. Some scholars say that he might have been afraid of reprisals or retaliation from those four kings that he just humiliated. I think that's a little silly. Why? Because he just humiliated those four kings. He whipped them, okay? I I doubt very seriously at this point in his life he was afraid of any man. So I don't think that's the answer. Some scholars think that he was toiling with the pain of infertility. As someone who's experienced the pain of infertility, I can tell you that it's very painful. It's one of the hardest struggles in this life. But I think Abram's pain and his fear goes far deeper than that. In fact, I think his infertility made his awareness of his real problem all the more real. His actual spiritual struggle was the fact that God had not yet delivered his promise of the promised seed of the woman that he made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's similar to you and I when we experience things in this broken world like illness or death or the loss of a job or something terrible, that something that reminds us that we're still in the not yet and we're still waiting for what will be. And that can be a painful waiting. But what Abram was experiencing was 10 times worse than that because Abram understood that all of the promises that God has made, including the promises that he has made to us, are 100% contingent on the fact that there needed to be the seed of the woman, the great redeemer of the world. And so here's Abram, who's been walking with the Lord for many years up to this point. He's been talking with the Lord for many years up to this point. But there's no tangible expression in his life that God is going to fulfill that promise. And you know that he is surrounded by people in his life that did not share the same conviction as him, that waiting on these promises were worth it. And that was painful for him. We've had those experiences before, right? We've been surrounded by people that didn't believe the way that we do. For some of us that's in our family, all of us have friends or coworkers that don't believe the way that we do. That's even more difficult when we're in circumstances that seem to defy the very thing that is that we believe. It's painful. That's what Abraham was experiencing. And it's in that context he finally released and opened up and shared with God his complaint. And this is what he said. He says, God, I have everything that a mere mortal would want in this life. I mean, I have riches, I have a very strong army, powerful army, powerful than any other army in this world. I have more than most, but I do not yet have what you promised me. And all these other things, I don't care about them. They're worthless in comparison to this promise that you made me years ago. I mean, were you joking? If so, it's cruel because I don't want these things. I need that promise, God. Where is it? The world needs that promise. 
That was his cry. Now, a little caveat. When he says that, he's not being disrespectful. It kind of sounds like it. But this does not come out of a place of disbelieving skepticism. Rather, it comes out of a place of profound faith. Because remember, he prefaces this whole complaint by saying, Sovereign Lord. Then he gives his complaint. So it's similar to, to what we see in Mark chapter 9, that, 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 that stance of faith that says, I believe you, God, but please help my unbelief. That's what Abram is saying right here. He says, God, I know that you're powerful. I know that you're all-knowing, that you're capable of doing this. I'm just simply, I don't understand why you haven't done it yet, and it's terrifying me to think, why? Have I let you down? Have you changed your mind? What's happened? That's the context. Now, God answers his questions in a powerful way. We're going to look at that in point two and point three. But before we get there, brothers, I just want us to pay attention to how God acts towards him. In the context of that fear and of that doubt, God does not rebuke him, but rather he comes to Abram as a comforter. And every time that you have those doubts and those fears, God will come to you as a comforter too. How does he come to a comforter as Abram? He reminds Abram of who he is as the God of promise. Now, there's three things I want us to look at about God being our God of promise, the God that we serve. First off, we see his initiating grace. In verse 1 and verse 7, we see our God's initiating grace. Just think about this. Do you know that there's not one aspect of our relationship with God that we enjoy our relationship with the Lord involves difficulty, absolutely. But there's not one, one aspect of our relationship with God that we would enjoy, that would be possible, that would exist without his grace to condescend to move into our lives. We often forget that. None of our relationships with the Lord would exist without his grace to condescend and to move in our lives. First off, this is true of our salvation. This is what he reminds Abram of in verse 7. Before he talks about this covenant that he's about to make with him, he gives Abram this historical prologue statement in verse 7. He goes, Abram, don't you remember that I am the Lord your God who plucked you up out of Ur? You didn't know who I was. You didn't care about me. You didn't even want to be in a relationship with me, but it was me and my grace that plucked you out of darkness in the first place. What in the world do you have to be afraid of? He does the same thing to the people of Israel in Exodus before he gives them the Ten Commandments, the law. He reminds the children of Israel of his grace. He goes, don't you know that I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, the house of slavery? You didn't want me. I chose you out of bondage. And he says the same thing to us in every verse in the New Testament. He saves us not because we saved ourselves or that we were worth it or even that we wanted to be saved, but in grace, he plucked us out of whatever hell we were in previously to make us his children. In his initiating grace, we are able to enjoy a relationship with him in the first place. That's true of our salvation, but don't you understand that's also true of our fellowship even after salvation? This is amazing. We see this in verse 1. It's because of God's initiating grace that Abraham was able to enjoy an intimate moment of fellowship with God. But you find it interesting that without God's omniscience of knowing that there was something going on inside Abram's heart, and without his initiating grace to act upon that, to intervene in his life, Abram would have continued on suffering in silence. He was just like any other man in this room. He stuffed his feelings. He buried it. He buried his fears. He didn't want anybody to know. He didn't want God to know. He didn't want to know what it meant, if, what God, how God would respond. He wanted to know what he would think of himself if he actually verbalized those things. So he stuffed it, and God knew that. And God knew that he was about to prevent himself from experiencing the comfort that God was about to give him. So God intervened and stirred his heart with comfort. Now, how did he do it? At the end of verse 1, we see, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, oftentimes we get hung up on that word vision, right? Especially this time of the year, there's lots of books about people's testimonies about having these grandiose visions of the Lord. You know, some of those books, some of the famous ones, like 90 Minutes of Heaven, or what's another one? Um, heaven is for Real. I think uh, one of the Quaid, Randy Quaid made a movie about I don't know what it is. There's so many movies and books about these grandiose visions and experiences of the Lord. Now, I have a not-so-kind word about those type of books, but make a point to note here that the point of this vision wasn't the vision. We don't know anything about this vision other than the fact that the word of the Lord came to Abram in this vision. By the way, that's how you can know if a vision is a real biblical one because it's not really about the vision. It's about the word of the Lord in that vision. Go to the, Paul's correspondence to the Corinthians. 
There's some weird visions that Paul has. He barely talks about them, but he's sure to make us understand the word that he received in those visions. Moses is saying, God through Moses rather, is saying to us, listen, you and I, we don't need these grandiose experiences. We don't need this vision, this, this upper level to fill in the blanks of what we need to know about God. All we need is the word of promise because it's in the word of promise that God ministers to our souls. Don't you understand, brothers, that every time we open up the scriptures like we're doing this morning, every single time God is initiating intimate fellowship, because every time we open up the scriptures, because it is God's sovereign, breathed, spoken word to us, it's as if he is sitting right next to us, speaking directly to us, letting us know what we need to hear. How did God stir Abram's heart? Through his word. He offered something that Abram needed through his word. Now, what did Abram need? This is our second subpoint of point one. This is amazing. In his word, God offered himself to Abram. Every time we open up the scriptures, God offers himself to us as well. In verse 1, God says, Abram, you do not need to be afraid to trust me. Why? Because I'm offering myself to you as your shield and as your great reward. That's what God offered to Abram, and that's what he offers to us. He is our shield. He is our great reward. Now, if, if God's omniscience didn't comfort Abram in the first place, this gracious reminder certainly did. First off, God offers himself as a shield. Now, by doing that, God is affirming Melchizedek's benediction in chapter 14, verse 20, where Melchizedek says, Surely God has delivered you from the hand of your enemies. So this is kind of God saying, Abram, don't you forget it. I mean, you're not the one who defeated those four kings. I'm the one who defeated those armies for you. Never forget that. But more to the point, Abram, never forget that I'll also have you in my hand right in this moment. And I will always have you in my hand, son, and I'm never going to let you go. That's what God is saying when he says, I am your shield. And that's what he's saying to you too. Even in those times where it doesn't feel like it, God is telling us he has us in his hand. He is our shield Better than that, he says, I am also your great reward, Abram. Now, this is most certainly referring to that great act of discipleship that Abram did at the end of chapter 14 where he refused the spoils of war. He did that out of faithfulness. But make no mistake, that was a huge sacrifice. No telling how much money that was, how much wealth. And no telling how many people complained to him, Abram, God hasn't done anything for us yet. I mean, this is a whole lot of money. Are you kidding me? But Abram denied it out of faithfulness, but God knew how painful that was. And so he comforted him by saying, Abram, don't you ever fear about any deprivation you have in this life for my sake. Why? Because I am your great reward, son. And brothers, I don't know about you, but I need that encouragement each and every day because following Jesus costs us something. If it doesn't cost you something, you might not be following Jesus because Jesus says, listen, pick up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. Following Jesus costs us our life. It is deep cost, and sometimes that cost is very, very painful. But how great of a reminder is this? Because God is saying, brothers, a relationship with me is infinitely more rewarding than anything possible in this world. You never have to second-guess knowing me and loving me and trusting me. You never have to wonder whether or not if it's worth it because loving me and trusting me and depending on me will give you more joy and more fulfillment and more security than any political power, any amount of money, and any human acclamation and fame and affection could offer you. This is what God is telling us in verse 2, that there's infinitely more joy and delight and having him as our God than anything else we could possibly imagine. God is offering himself to every single one of us as our shield and as our reward. Right now in my devotional life, I'm reading this book called Piercing Heaven. It's a collection of Puritan prayers. And there's this one prayer by this man named Richard Aileen. He was a sympathist of the Westminster Assembly of Divines, which meant that he was heavily persecuted by Charles II. He was exiled from England, persecuted, experienced much deprivation in his a discipleship following Jesus Christ. This is one of his prayers. He said, Father, if you said that you are my God, why should I fear any enemy? I will believe you, Lord, so silence my fears. As you've given me the title of your son, so give me the confidence of one. Let your promises be my faithful companions and comforts. When I go, let your promises lead me. When I sleep, let them keep me. When I wake, let them talk to me. Let my heart be the ark of your covenant where your promises are forever kept. 
And that was his prayer because when God offers himself to you as your shield and as your great reward, you don't need anything else. Friends, that is why we need to take our daily bread and our daily Bible reading so seriously. That we need to be diligent in it because every time that God reveals himself to us in his word, he is offering himself to the reader. So whenever you want to know God, whenever you want to experience an intimate fellowship moment with him, all you have to do is open up his word because that's when he offers you himself as your rock, your shield, and as your reward. Every single verse of every single page reminds us of that in the Bible. Now, ultimately, we know that he ultimately offers himself to us in the person Jesus Christ. The Bible is a book about Jesus, as George often reminds us. Every single verse, whether implicitly or explicitly, points us to our true great reward, the the great reward of our souls, Jesus Christ himself. Let's just think about this. Where else do we hear that or see that term shield in the Bible? Go to Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul talks about the shield of faith. He says, pick up the shield of faith. Paul is not saying, hey, you need to muster up enough courage to fend off the, 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 the attacks of the evil one. He's not saying that. He is simply calling you to trust in the shield of God's faithfulness, whom is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus Christ, who offers himself to us as our shield. And he gives us the assurance in John 6 that he will not let one go that the Father has given him. He's got you in his hand, Christ does. What in the world do we have to be afraid of? And even greater than that, where else do we see reward and treasure in the Bible? How about the New Testament where Jesus says that he is the true treasure in the field worth absolutely everything in our life? The writer of Hebrews 11 says that Moses believed that the riches of Jesus Christ were of infinitely greater value than all of the riches of Egypt. And this is the Jesus who offers himself to us, brothers. God offers himself to us, ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ, as our great shield and as our great reward. Now, before we move on to how God ultimately answers Abram's questions, there's one more thing I want us to know about God, if it's not already obvious. Notice how kind he is. How many of us suffer in silence because we're too afraid to bring our issues to God? We're afraid of what he might think of us, what others might think of us, what our pastors might think of us. I don't know. How many of us suffer in silence because we're too afraid to bring our issues to the Lord? On one hand, it's very silly for us to hide them, right? Because we know that God is omniscient. He knows our hearts better than we do, so we can't hide them from him. That's silly too. But it's also silly to be afraid of the Lord. We're to revere God, absolutely, but we don't need to be afraid of him. I love Abram so much because I see myself often in his worst moments. Abram was a doubter. He was afraid. He was often faithless. Yet James tells us in chapter 2 that Abram was God's friend. And God is your friend too, in spite of your worst moments. And he's a friend to anyone who's willing to admit what God already knows about them. Who in faith, humble faith, says, God, I believe, but please help my unbelief. God is kind to us. He even goes to show us the great lengths of his kindness in, the, in verses 2 through 5, God's word should have been enough from Abram, but he knew that God, or Abram's faith was weak just like ours. So what does God do? He gives him a tangible sign, a sacrament, if you will, to seal to his heart and his mind that his promises are true. God does the same thing for us in the Lord's Supper, which we take every Sunday night here at Second. The Lord's Supper, which is this tangible sign that the Holy Spirit uses to seal to our hearts and our minds that the promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ are true. We're going to talk about more about this in just a moment, but that's how the stars functioned in verses 2 through 5. It was a sacrament. It was this tangible thing that God gave Abram that he could experience and see that would seal to his heart and his mind that God's promises are true. How kind is God? He says, whatever it is that you have in your heart, whatever it is that you're hiding, don't be afraid. Take it to me and let me overwhelm you with my comfort. That's what God says. It's amazing. <laughs> It reminds us in this Advent season, whatever it is that we're going through, whatever it is that's causing us pain and doubt, to take it to our God of promise who will deal with us kindly and comfort us ultimately by offering to us himself through his word. Now, secondly, we come to verse 6. This is our second point. Verse 6, which is arguably the most important verse in the Bible, uh, mainly because Paul bases his entire theology of salvation around verse 6. Uh, Now, just a little caveat, we're to understand that this is not the moment, verse 6, that Abram was converted. 
Okay, if you read it, it seems kind of jarring. It's a little bit out of context, and it is, because it's an editorial comment that Moses makes about Abram. It's this summary statement indicating the type of faith that Abram had. When he came to faith, I'm not sure. Some scholars think maybe it was around when God called him in the first place in Genesis chapter 12. But Moses, or rather God through Moses, wants us to know that even though Abram's faith was not perfect, just like ours is never going to be perfect in this life, this is the kind of faith that Abram had. Now, the big question is, why in the world would God give us an editorial comment in verse 6? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4, verse 24, he says, God wrote that down for our sakes. Why? So that you and I might know the true nature of saving faith and the essence of the gospel promise. Brothers, think about how amazing this is. God, we know that God gives us the entirety of his word as a gift and a means of grace that we might know him and his will for our life. But God in his word says, this verse is especially for you, amen. (laughs) It's amazing. And what verse 6 teaches is amazing. So really quickly, again, the context. Remember, even though that God had not uh, precisely revealed how he's going to pull off these promises, Abram reasoned in his heart that for any of these promises to come to fruition, there had to be at least one child, one seed, one heir. All right, that's just how biology works. There's not going to be a great nation, a multitude of people to necessitate the promised land without at least one son. So he knew that everything was hinging on this one child. And again, we saw the problem that he hadn't gotten that kid yet. But to make this problem worse and more dire, he knew that the probability of this promise coming to fruition was very low. Why? Because his wife was of old age. And he knew, in fact, that this was an impossibility unless God intervened. But even then, he had no idea how God was going to do this thing because his wife's womb, by all intents and purposes, was dead. He even tried to help God at one point. God, am I supposed to adopt that Egyptian boy over there? I don't know how you're going to do this. Am I supposed to help you? Now, again, God comforts Abram. But in verse 4 and verse 5, he does something that he's never done before, something new to comfort Abram and to comfort you and me. And the progression of Revelation, he finally reveals just how he's going to pull off these promises. And he says, Abram, you're right. There is going to be a child. There is going to be a seed. There is going to be an heir who's going to redeem the world. But you're not going to adopt him. He's going to come from your loins. In verse 4 and verse 5, we get a pronouncement of the gospel. Then God takes this former pagan astrologist, moon worshiper, out into the night sky. And he says, Abram, I want you to look up there. Do you see those stars? Yes, God, I see those stars. Abram, do you trust that I made those stars? Yes, God, I trust that you made I used to worship those stars, but now I just know they're, they're drippings off your creative fingertips. I know that you're the creator of all things. I trust that, Lord. He goes, good. Now trust this. I am the God who makes possible the impossible. I am the God who brings life out of dead things just like I brought those stars out of nothing. Trust me. And it's in that moment that he was awed and he was humbled and his fears were hushed. Why? Because he believed. It's really interesting. The root word for belief there is the same root word for amen, what we get our namesake from. What does amen mean in the original context? Amen meant this celebratory phrase that confidently said, so shall it be. And so when he heard the gospel proclaimed in verses 4 and 5, he amened the gospel. He said, so shall it be, God. He had saving faith. Now, why is it important that we understand this? Well, two reasons, so that you and I would know the nature of saving faith. Friends, Abraham didn't just believe in God, he actually believed God. There's a major difference than believing in God and believing God. It's the same difference of believing that there is a sun in the sky and believing that the sun will rise tomorrow and acting in accordance with that fact. He didn't just believe in God, he believed God. He knew that there was no hope of redemption within himself or this world, even his wife's womb. She was barren. He trusted, however, that God would provide a way of redemption by means of grace, and he believed it. He had saving faith. He believed that God could do the impossible. He believed that God could bring life out of dead things. Two things about saving faith. First off, Paul tells us in Romans 4 that a saving faith is a resurrection faith. This is what Paul says in Romans 4. He says, Abraham believed God, God who gives life to the dead, a.k.a. Sarah's womb, and calls into being things that were not. In hope, Abraham believed and was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. It's the same type of faith that he demonstrated in Genesis chapter 22, where after many years of waiting, he finally had a son named Isaac, and without hesitation, he took Isaac up to that mountain to sacrifice him because God had said so. 
Just think about that. The man was in pain for years to finally have a son. He has the son, and without hesitation, he was going to sacrifice the child just because God told him to. Why in the world did he do that without even asking a question? Are you serious, God? Because the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 11, he reasoned within his heart that if this is what God would want him to do because God is a God who keeps his promises, even though this has never happened before, that God would raise his son from the dead. Because he finally believed that God was a God who keeps his promises, that can do the impossible, that brings life out of dead things. He had a resurrection faith, brothers. Ultimately, though, he had a faith in Jesus Christ alone. This is what Paul tells us in Galatians 3. He says the promise that God spoke to Abraham was not to Abraham and his seeds, plural, but it was to Abraham and his seed, singular, meaning one person. And Paul says his name is Jesus Christ. Even back then, in so much as Jesus was revealed to Abraham, Abraham trusted in Christ alone, just like every other Old Old Testament saint that was of God's people. He trusted in Christ alone. He tells us this to remind us, brothers, that we're not to put our hope and our faith in anything other than the person of Jesus, not just to believe in him, but to believe actually what he has said, what he has done and will do. Next, we see the very essence of the gospel in this saving faith. uh, Moses tells us at the end of verse six, he says, because Abraham believed he had the saving faith, God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, righteousness, what is that? That is perfect conformity to God's law, which, by the way, you and I and Abram cannot do. It's perfect conformity to God's law. It's the righteousness of God himself. But because Abraham believed, God imputed his righteousness to Abram's account. And Paul says that right there is the essence of the gospel. That it was as if through faith that Abraham was perfect and holy because God's righteousness was imputed to his account. He reckoned his faith as an act of perfect and holistic obedience. He reckoned his righteousness to Abram. And what Moses is reminding us of, what Paul tells us of, that this is just the essence of the gospel. That by grace alone, nothing that we have ever done or will do, through the mechanism of faith alone in Christ alone, you and I are loved, accepted, and forever accepted as a little Christ in God's eyes. No sin that we've ever committed, past, present, or future, no failure of faith, no unrighteousness will ever be imputed to our account because Christ has removed it. And more than that, he's given us his righteousness and his perfect life so that we might be secure until we inherit the true promised land, the new heavens and new earth, the essence of the gospel. Now I ask you again, why did God write this down for our sakes? One reason, two, maybe two. First reason is because he knows our tendency to put our hope in other things. We are just like Abram, where you and I have a tendency to believe in ourselves, to believe in our record, the things that we have done, the fact that we're decently moral people. We are so messed up, we often put our hope in the fact that we have faith rather than in the object of our faith most times. I'm a Christian because I have a faith. <laughs> Not because Jesus saved. We Oftentimes we put our hope in our, the fact that we have faith often more than we do the object of our faith. It's the same way I used to treat my gym membership. I mean, I never went to the gym, but I had that gym membership card and that's all I needed. Like I was going to get fit through osmosis or something. Sometimes we can pretend that's what our faith is about. We have more faith in the fact that we have faith than the object of our faith. But this is what Moses is saying. Listen, that type of faith, when you're trusting in yourself or the things that you've done, or even if you're placing your hope in your faith rather than the object of your faith, that's just going to lead to frustration. That's going to lead to terror and insecurity because that's a faith that does not save. But here's the great news of the gospel. You experience release from all of that when you transfer your trust from yourself and put it in Christ. When we stop just simply trusting in Jesus, we actually trust Jesus and what he says and what he's done and will do. Ultimately, according to the context anyway, we are told this in verse 6, that all of our fears might be alleviated from whatever mountain's facing us. Whatever is in front of you, if, if it's infertility, if it's death, if it's illness, if it's loss, whatever it is, whatever it is, by reminding us of this awesome truth of the gospel, it alleviates our fears. I don't know about you, but oftentimes I think to myself, you know, when I'm going through suffering or something really painful, and someone tells me just, just a gospel track, you know, reminds me of the promises of the gospel. I think to myself, you know, that's great news. I, like, I mean, I believe that. It, it, it's delight to my ears, but that's kind of a cliche right now. How's that going to help me in my pain and my suffering and my present circumstances? I don't want to hear that. Have you ever been through a season like that before? You just don't want to hear that from anyone. You don't need that. 
because you're going through something real and, and earthy and painful right here in the present. Paul says that's exactly what we need in Romans 8. And this is what he says, if God who did not spare his only son, will he not also graciously give you all things? Friends, that's gospel logic right there. Because our deepest and most, and most dire need is righteousness. We will have other needs in this life. Many of us have needs right now. But make no mistake, no matter how bad those needs are, our ultimate need is righteousness. And Paul is saying, what Moses is saying, if God has met our ultimate need in Jesus Christ, what else do we have to worry about? Because everything we could ever possibly need or want, we have secured in Christ. We have his righteousness. He is our great reward. Another Puritan said this. He says, Lord, I would be the most miserable person in the world, even if I had all the enjoyments of this world, if my hope was in this life alone. Why? Because I am hopeless without Christ's righteousness. However you deal with my outward things, whatever you deny me, please do not deny me Christ. And the great news of the gospel is, is that he doesn't when you place your faith in him. He gives you your most ultimate need, his righteousness. The meaning of saving faith and the essence of the gospel. Now, lastly, in verses 8 through 21, we get the assurance of the gospel promise. Up to this point, God has been trying to tell us that the, the main thing that we need to understand is that we need to set our eyes upon Jesus. We need to put the anchor of our heart in God's promises, the promise of the gospel. And that's exactly what Abraham did. But remember, Abraham's a normal dude. Even though he had a saving faith, is intermixed with doubt just like all of us have. And so speaking on our behalf in verse eight, he says, God, this is amazing, but how can I really know that this stuff is true? Because this is too good to be true. How can I be assured that you're gonna fulfill these promises? And so for the next 12 verses, God answers them. In verse one, he says, Abram, I'm gonna offer, offer myself to you. In verse six, he reminded Abram of the promise of the gospel. Now in verses eight through 21, he says, now here's my guarantee of the gospel. I've heard everything he had to say. Now listen to me, here's my guarantee. He says, I want you to bring me a heifer. I want you to bring me a goat. And I want you to bring a ram. I want you to cut those things in half and be sure when the birds of prey to come to knock those birds away. I don't want them touching that meat. Now, as Memphians, that kind of seems like a barbecue, right? Like, what in the world does that have to do with a guarantee? <laughs> Abram knew what was going on. That's just what people did back then when they wanted to guarantee a promise. Abram knew that God was about to guarantee his promise in a very important way. He knew that God was entering into a covenant with Abram for the very first time. God had promised a covenant, but now he's entering into a covenant with Abram. Now, back then, it was not a written culture, so they had to illustrate stuff. For example, they had to illustrate the consequences that would befall them should they not live up to their end of the bargain. We get an example of that in Jeremiah 34, when they split up these animals, and the people making the covenant would walk between these slain animals, and that was essentially saying, if I do not live up to my end of the bargain, whatever happened to these animals, let that happen to me too. That's what that meant. So that's what God was doing. He was entering into this covenant. He was guaranteeing his promises to Abram. It was very graphic, very bloody and disgusting, but it was a very effective way to guarantee your promises. It was a very common thing back then to do that. But this is not an ordinary covenant. This isn't a common one, this covenant that Abraham has with the Lord. In fact, two extraordinary things happened. First off, in verse 12, God caused this dreadful darkness to come over Abram. Tim Keller says he likened it to a spiritual terror. It was 100% awareness of all the evil in the world and all the evil in his heart. And in this spiritual darkness, God said very dark things. He talked to him about enslavement, persecution, exile. He talked to him about some very dark things. And it almost crushed his spirit. It was like this cloak of darkness was just over him. But then all of a sudden in verse 17, something else amazing happens. He sees a vision of a smoking pot and a burning torch. What in the world is that all about? Well, that is right there. That's a theophany. And it's the same type of imagery that we see later in Exodus on Mount Sinai and later with the pillar of smoke leading the people of Israel out of Egypt in the actual Exodus account. What is that a theophany of? God's presence. In the midst of that darkness, Abram sees God's presence. Brothers, I do not know of another passage in the Bible that clearly shows the assurance of the gospel than this one. And that's including New Testament passages. This is amazing what we see here. Now, here's why. In my mind, the two of the greatest problems in our relationship with the Lord is one, trusting the Lord to do what he says he's going to do. That's what Abram says in verse 8. Lord, how can I know I can trust you and give in my circumstances? We've all asked those type of questions before. How can I know I can trust you? Well, God answers them in a big way. Guess what? God, his presence walked through those pieces. 
And we have to understand that's a big deal because back then kings never did that. It was always the lesser person in this covenant agreement that walked through these slain animals. But here, it was God that was doing it. And it was almost blasphemous if you thought about it. If you were Abram, I, I guarantee you he almost, he almost covered his ears when he heard this because here is the immortal, eternal God who's saying, you know what, if I don't live up to my end of the bargain here, I'm going to become a man and I'm going to have my flesh ripped off and I'm going to die if I don't hold up my end of the bargain. That's what God said. And he says, that's how you can know Abram. And so here's Abram probably just overwhelmed with comfort, couldn't believe what he just said. But here's the next problem that we have in a relationship with the Lord. Abram must have said to himself, God, that's amazing. I can't believe what you just said. But if I really sit down and think about it, I mean, I never actually thought that you wouldn't hold up to your end of the bargain. I am, however, worried about me. I I believe in you. I don't really believe in me, though. I know that I'm going to let you down. I already have. I know that my faith is going to fail. It already has. One of these days, you're going to grow tired of me. I know that's going to happen, God. Have you ever had that fear before? I have that all the time, to be honest with you. And there's, I don't think there's a doubt that causes more anxiety than that one. But here's God's answer. Abram, I'm going to be the only one that walks through those pieces. And what he was telling Abram, Abram, I'm going to walk through for the both of us. And with every person in this room, if you're in Christ, that's what he says to you too. I'm going to walk through for the both of us. Amen. Friends, this is amazing. This covenant of grace and this covenant of redemption that God made with his son before the foundation of the world. Listen, it was graciously initiated. We had nothing to do with it. We didn't ask for it. God initiated it. It's also unilateral which means is that God is the one who made it and God is the one who keeps it and God is the one who fulfills it for our sakes. So by God walking through these pieces by himself, this is the Lord saying, you know what? This is not a cooperative partnership. This isn't me just simply helping those who help themselves. This is the gospel. Abram, I'm going to put myself on the hook. May I be cut off if I don't live up to my end of the bargain. But you know what? May I and I alone be cut off if you don't live up to yours either. That's the promise of the gospel, brothers. God loves you so much and wants to bless you so much, he's willing to die in order to make that happen. And here's our guarantee. That day happened. Isn't it providentially wonderful? And I I promise you, Todd and I did not manipulate the text for this to be worked out. But isn't it providentially wonderful that we're studying this right now in the heart of Advent season? That Advent season where each of us, in our own way, is longing for heaven. And we have those cries of, how long, O Lord? How can I know? This passage answers that Advent question and the Advent pain and longing with the message of Christmas hope. Here's how you can know. Galatians 4.4, when time had come, God finally sent his son, born of the woman, the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15, born under the curse of the law for your sakes. Matthew 1.23, his name is Emmanuel, God with us. God did become man. He did take on flesh. John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Mark chapter 15, verse 33, At the sixth hour, just like it did for Abram, in chapter 15 of Genesis, darkness fell upon Jesus. Mark chapter 15, verse 34, Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cut off, brothers, so that you and I would never have to be. Then in John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus finally said, It is finished. I have held up my end of the bargain, and I've held up to your end of the bargain. It is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What that tells us, brothers, is that every promise of God in the Old Testament, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and every other promise is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And Abraham believed that. And so much as it was revealed to him, Abram put his faith in Jesus. He didn't just believe in Jesus, he trusted Jesus. But he never knew the cost of it like you and I do. That Jesus, the only begotten son, the seed of the woman, the redeemer of the world, who knew no sin, became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. That is our guarantee. I had to sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus because that is my family's favorite hymn. I made fun of my son earlier. I'm going to tell you a sweet moment about my son. Every night of the week, my wife and I sing that song to my boy. We sing it so often, he can actually word, mouth the words now. Um, there's a few words that he, he, that he really emphasizes, but he can mouth the whole song. It's, it's unbelievable. I love it. I didn't used to like that song. I used to think it was corny until now. 
And a lot of people don't like that song because it seems like it kind of teaches a head in the sand type of faith, head in the clouds type of faith. Just ignore all the suffering and the pain around you. The very opposite is true. Um, this song is based off a poem by a woman named Elias Trotter, a missionary to Algeria in the 1800s. You can imagine the type of persecution that a woman experienced in North Africa in the 1800s. Even more than the persecution, the level of deprivation that she experienced. She was hungry. She was thirsty. That African sun was beaten down on her in old age. She was lonely. She was isolated. She suffered. And she said that she was constantly tempted by the allurements of this world to give up. Now, she never ignored those things. She never ignored those pains and those longings and those sufferings. But she did force herself to no longer dwell on them. So she reminded herself to fix her eyes on Christ because she knew it was only then that her deepest fears and her deepest doubts and her deepest pains would dim in light of his glory and grace. That is why we sing that song to my son every single night. That is my hope for you. That is Moses' hope for every single one of us in this room. That's the point of this passage, that we would turn our eyes upon Jesus because the answer to every single one of our fears, every single one of our doubts, every single one of our concerns and pains and longings is Christ. So brothers, in this Advent season, when we're longing for the second Advent, whenever you experience the painful cries of how long or how can I believe, turn your eyes upon the Lord. The one who guarantees the gospel for us by dying. <laughs> The one who, like Abram, knocks away the ravens of Satan's schemes and holds us forever secure until that day to come. And the one who gives us the greatest reward imaginable, the gift of himself. Brothers, turn your eyes upon Jesus and see your fears transformed to comfort. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful even for this morning that we might be reminded of the simplicity, but the profundity, too, of the gospel. We know that we're undeserving, but we're so grateful. We pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would help us to believe more deeply in what you tell us, that we wouldn't just believe in you, but that we would believe you and what you have done and what you will do in Christ. Help us, O oh Lord, to believe and help us to share the good news with the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.